8.32, another big 32. 11.32 is also a big 32. Patty, you're here tonight. I thought you were going to the Scientology meeting. I thought, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, Nance said it was last night, so. How do you know? I better start doing three times a week. All right. Romans 8.32. Let's take a couple moments. Silent. Father, we're grateful to be here tonight. We stand with those who can't be, who are undergoing difficulties or adversities. And we ask that your presence will be manifested with them as your presence is manifested here tonight. And we thank you for the assurance of the presence of the triune God in our midst. We thank you for the universally saving significance of Jesus for his will to go to the cross, which was in your, your, in union with your will, your universally saving will, which is the definition of your love. We pray that these things will be manifest to your people, to their edification and their strength so that they may be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within them to anyone who asks. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. In the parable of the wicked tenant farmers, you find that in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 39. A vineyard owner sent his own son to those tenant farmers after they had beaten, abused, and even killed the several slaves who were sent to them to receive the first fruits of their harvest from the, to the vineyard owner. In the telling of the parable, Jesus says this in Matthew twenty-one thirty-seven. He said, finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Verse 38, but when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, H-E-I-R. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. In this parable, Jesus makes it clear that the son is also the heir of the vineyard. He sent his son and the wicked tenant farmers said, this is the heir. Now my point in beginning this way is that the son of God who in our passage is said that God did not spare him, but freely handed him over for us all. It's also important that we understand that he is the heir of all things. Now Yahweh is the vineyard owner, the father And Jesus is his son, 
and the heir of all things. Yahweh means I am that I am. And Yahweh Yira looks like this by our transliteration into the Hebrew. Yahweh Yira. It is said in a more vulgar way, Jehovah Jireh, but that's not the real pronunciation. Yahweh Yira. And that is a key passage. That's a key to interpreting our passage. It comes from Genesis chapter 22 and verse 8, as we've looked at several times already. Abraham says to his son, Yahweh will provide. means literally Yahweh will see to it. Yahweh will provide himself a lamb. Or it says in a generic sense, a sheep for the burnt offering. Yahweh Yira. This fits into our doctrine of divine promeity or promeity because Yahweh and Yahweh Yira are one. Yahweh Yira speaks of him who is for us and who made the provision for us in our deepest need, which is for salvation. And so in this parable, Yahweh is the vineyard owner and Jesus is his son and the heir of all things. Yahweh means I am that I am. Yahweh Yira, I am he who sees or sees to it or provides. Another way of saying I am he who is for you. These names are of one and one in the same being. Or we could say, I am, and I am he who provides, are one and the same triune being. One divine being, so we say God is one. The three divine persons, so we say that God is triune. This is the theological basis for a doctrine that has emerged from our study of Romans. God made it emerge. It wasn't something consciously written up. That's the doctrine of universal divine promeity. We've said it enough so that it deserves its own acronym, I guess, UDP, universal divine promeity. God and God for us is one and the same being. And for us means for us all. Romans 8.32 then has to be expounded in the light of Genesis 22. And it also has to be expounded in the knowledge that the son whom God hands over and does not spare is also an heir, the heir. The son is the heir. So if I had a title for tonight's message, I would say the heir not spared. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Genesis 32, which you can read on your own. A lot of this is derived from this. 8.32 is actually derived from Genesis 32, where the gospel of God about his son, Jesus, is adumbrated. Now, adumbrated is a good word because it speaks of foreshadowing. When something is adumbrated, it is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, which is includes shadows, the substance of which is Christ when he came in the flesh. And so Genesis 22 
The gospel about God's son, Jesus, is adumbrated in Isaac, Abraham's son. And it's also foreshadowed in God's promise spoken to Abraham and through Abraham to Isaac. God himself will provide a sheep, it says. Now, the word sheep is in the Greek or the Septuagint translation is probaton, probaton. And that is a generic term that can speak of any number of animals from the flock. Here it specifically means a yearling lamb from the flock of slaughter. We don't know that from this passage, but we know from the progression of the narrative of the scripture that what God provides as a sheep or as an animal from the flock is a yearling without spot and blemish by analogy and from the flock of slaughter. Now this is a very important thing because if you notice Romans eight thirty six, just down the line a little bit, there's a connection that's rarely seen as a connection. All we like sheep are led to the slaughter all day long. And, but then it says, but no, the no answers the question in Romans eight thirty five about anything separating us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, even though we are in a time of great adversity and agona in this clashing juncture of the ages. But that's something that's a connection that's hard to wrap your arms around right now, at least tonight. And so again, the word probaton, the Greek looks like this, P-R-O-B-A-T-O-N, probaton, the accent falling on that first syllable. God will provide a probaton. The Hebrew, however, is se, simply S-E-H in transliteration, and that, that means specifically lamb. And so I would say a lamb from the flock of slaughter, a yearling lamb without spot or blemish is more specifically what's metaphorically provided as scripture shows later on in its progressive narrative. The word mostly appears in the plural form in the word probata, P-R-O-B-A-T-A, like in Romans 8, which quotes the Septuagint of Psalm 4422. Well, the English is 4422 of the Psalms. You can, that will be important for you someday soon. And the Septuagint of 4422 is 4323. It's always maddening. But Paul quoted this in all, of all places, Romans 836, just a little down the line from our present verse. My translation would read this way. As it is written, it's in parentheses, the whole verse. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are accounted or considered as sheep, prabata, for the slaughter. Now that we are, there's a hint of things to come, that we are considered as sheep for the slaughter is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It means that we are identified with Jesus Christ. Even though few of us have the privilege of experiencing this to the extent that the Apostle Paul and others did. 
Like in the letter to Second Corinthians 4, the apostle says, For we who are living, speaking specifically as a messenger of the word, we who are living are always being handed over to death. He uses the same word that is we're going to find that is a key term in our passage tonight in Romans 8. And it's a very important verb all throughout Romans. Paradidomi. Paradidomi. And it means many things. It has many nuances of meaning. It means it can mean to betray. Judas betrayed him, handed him over. It means to hand over. It can also mean to deliver up for the purpose of punishment or the purpose of judgment, paradidomy. And Paul uses that word and he says, for we who are living are always being handed over to death. And this word is ice thanaton. And then the present passive indicative of paradidomy. Because of our identification with Jesus, he says, again, Second Corinthians 4, we who are living are always being handed over to death. That's during this juncture of the ages. Because of our identification with Jesus, so that Jesus' resurrection life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. But in answer to the rhetorical question, Romans 8.35, and this is going to bring us to the end of Romans, at least my treatment of it for the present moment. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Oppression, trouble, persecution, hunger, destitution, danger, violence. The answer is an emphatic no in verse 37. Because we're also identified with Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which made him the conqueror of death, and therefore the hyper-conqueror. And we are hyper-victors or super-victors in him in all these things, in adversity university. In all these things we experience is adversity in the agona, which is the clashing juncture of the ages. We are more than conquerors. The law of the cross includes the fact that God transforms the evil into the supreme good. The evil that we are looking at here is death itself. Death itself is an evil, but it was transformed into the ultimate good by the cross, by the death of Jesus Christ, which conquered death in his resurrection. And so, to me, Paul says, living is Christ, dying is profit or gain. That's the transformation by the law of the cross of evil into the supreme good. This also reaches over to principalities and powers responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, who will also be judged, and they will be judged by a transformation by grace. Their punishment will be a transformation by grace. That's the just and mysterious law of the cross made famous in Bernard Lonergan's book or Bernard Lonergan's book called The Redemption. I'm working my way gruelingly through that right now in Thesis 17. And we'll be bringing that in a theological treatment pretty soon. So no is the answer. 
to the question in verse 35. No in verse 37 answers the question in 35. Even if it seems like we're going to be taken out in all the things that come against us. But we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And even if we are delivered to death, we're still more than conquerors because Jesus Christ conquered death and gave us the victory. To be delivered to death is not such a bad thing when we consider that the evil of death was transformed into the supreme good by the just and mysterious law of the cross. We are in Christus Victor, Christ the conqueror, the one who conquered even death. More than conquerors then means that we in Christ have also conquered death. So death is no longer something we fear. And that transforms livingness. That transforms our life. It's a radical distinction between those who do not fear death and those who do in this world. A radical distinction. Those who fear death never truly live. Those who have conquered death and know they have in Christ truly live in this life. And so what I'm trying to do is go a little forward in our message I've gone to a parable in Matthew 21. I've gone to the Old Testament in Genesis 22. I've jumped a little forward in Romans 8. And again, Romans 8, 37, and we're anticipating this. No, in all these things, we are super victors through him who loved us. And that means Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself over for us. He wasn't just handed over, as Romans 8, 32 says. He handed himself over. As Galatians 2.20 says, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live and the life that I now live. I live by the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me and paradidomi handed himself over for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. Paul said in Galatians 2.21. And so. Again, Romans 8, 37, anticipating down the road here. No, in all these things, we are super victors through him who loved us. And that's Jesus Christ who gave himself over for us in the union of the human will of the man Christ Jesus and the divine will of God the Father. Because the man Christ Jesus had union with the will of the Father to save all mankind. And the action of the Son saved all humankind. Now, just thought I'd shoot that out for you. But now we're back to Genesis 22. You might want to look there, in fact. But stay in Romans 8. Back to Genesis 22 in verse 14. And again, we've looked at this before. I wish I could spend a lot more time on it. But I want to finish Romans at least for now, Genesis twenty two fourteen, and it says, and Abraham named that site, S-I-T-E, as in website, he named that site Yahweh-Ra-Ah, Yahweh-Ra-Ah, and that's a form of the word Yira, Yahweh, in fact, the phonetic pronunciation or writing of this would be Y-E-R, and that would be a long E, and then A, long A, and then E, H. So it comes out sort of like Yahweh, Yira. He named the site where Isaac was spared 
Isaac, the son and heir of Abraham, was spared. And Abraham named that place, that site on that mountain, Yahweh Ra'ah, or Yahweh Yirah. In the Greek, it's Kurios Ophthe. The Lord will see to it. So it is said today, says verse 14, the writer of Genesis says this, it is said today, it, meaning the sheep for the burnt offering, will be provided on Yahweh's mountain. That mountain is ultimately Golgotha, Mount Calvary, where the lamb took away the sin of the world. The son not spared, the heir not spared. Or one of the translations thanks to the complete Jewish Bible edited by David Stern says on the mountain, Yahweh is seen. Yahweh becomes the object of the seeing. And I like that because what Jesus said in John eight twenty eight, when you will have lifted me up, that's on the cross on Mount Calvary, you will then know that I am he, I am he. He is not only Yahweh, but he's the one, the lamb offered by Yahweh. He's not only the great high priest that offers the offering, but he's the offering offered. The offerer is the offering offered. There we're getting into the epistle of Hebrews territory, which the Lord seems to keep directing us to. So God himself will provide a sheep from the flock is the sense of what Genesis 22, eight says. Abraham had this assurance before he offered Isaac. In the famous Akedah, A-K-E-D-A-H, the event on Mount Moriah is called the Akedah. God himself will provide a sheep from the flock, Genesis 22, 8. To us now, we would say God has provided the lamb who has taken away the sin of the world. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself to God without spot and blemish. That's a lamb. Purify your conscience from dead works to serve a living God, the living God, Hebrews 9, 14. And so we would say back then it was God will provide himself a lamb. But from our perspective, post cross, God has provided the lamb who has taken away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine. This is how the gospel of God's son was adumbrated or foreshadowed and now revealed or made known in the writings of the prophets. This is an adumbration or foreshadowing of the open and plain preaching of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery. Kept silent for ages of time gone by but now manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations by the commandment of the eternal God to bring about the obedience that is faith. That's Romans 16, 25 and 26. In other words, the gospel that's all about God's son was always in the writings of the prophets, but it didn't pop until Christ came and the spirit revealed it. So for ages, when Moses was read, people didn't get the point. But when the heart turns to the Lord, 
then the Old Testament writings of the prophets are seen to contain the mystery of the saving significance of Jesus Christ universally. The restoration of all things is spoken of in the prophets in Acts 3.21. And so, again, on Mount Calvary, Yahweh himself provided the probaton, probaton, the lamb. From the domestic flock, again, that word means any animal from the domestic flock, from the species called ovine, O-V-I-N-E, or ovus aries, if you're going with the Latin. And Yahweh was seen on the mountain for Jesus speaking as Yahweh said, when you will have lifted me up, then you will know that I am. There is no greater revelation of Yahweh and his love than the crucified man, Jesus Christ. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, for there is no greater disclosure of God and God's love. And so again, and I'm hitting this over and over again like a hammer pounding a nail. Sheep in Genesis 22, 8 is probaton in the Greek text. It is a generic term for any domesticated ruminant mammal of the species called ovis aries or ovine. And so there should be no confusion when Abraham turns and sees a ram in the thicket because the ram in the thicket is a picture of Jesus Christ who is caught from eternity past in a plan to be the sacrifice lamb. There are also offerings of sheep. There are offerings of the scapegoat. There's offerings of bullocks and rams. So the point is, though, the word probaton is generic for domesticated ruminant animals. If we go through the scriptures, we find in Exodus, for example, already, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then expounded greatly in Hebrews, we find that that probaton is specifically a yearling lamb, the analogy of a yearling lamb without spot or blemish, which is analogous to Jesus Christ himself. He's taken from the flock, which means he is of humanity. He is of humanity. He is divinity and humanity. So, it's generic for any domesticated ruminant, R-U-M-I-N-A-N-T, mammal of the species called ovine. So, Yahweh, Yera, God will see, or the Lord, God for us, provided all that we, we, enslaved to sin, ungodly, and at enmity against God, all that we would need to be redeemed, Romans 3.24, rectified or set right, Romans 3.24, 4.25, and 5.18, and reconciled to God in Romans 5.10. Again, the Lord God provided for us in the Lamb all that we, we enslaved to sin, Romans 5.8, we who are ungodly, Romans 5.6, we who are at enmity against God, Romans 5.10, all that we need, 
We needed to be redeemed from slavery to sin. We were in Romans 3.24. We needed to be rectified or set right or justified. We were in Romans 3.24, 4.25, and 5.18. We needed to be reconciled to God, and we were while we were yet enemies in Romans 5.10. So by we being reconciled or by we being redeemed or by we being rectified is meant all of humanity, all of whom in the view of God sinned and fell short of the glory of God. God stands astride all of time and sees all of humanity in simultaneity. And so he sees all have sinned, all sinned. And so at the cross, all of humanity was present in Christ when Christ became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We is all humanity, Romans 3.10 to 18, Romans 3.23. And the all is confirmed in Romans 8.32. Finally, we're there. If God is for us, and he most certainly is, then who can be against us? The answer is nobody. Verse 32, since indeed God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over, delivered him up, what can say if you want, for us all. How will he not, with him, freely grant us all things? And that's why I brought up son, then heir. As son, he was handed over. As heir, he inherits everything. He freely gives us the everything that he inherited. That's how much God loves us. That's how much God loves his son. I hope it becomes a little more clear. What I started off in the beginning will come to a little more clarity at the end. Universal divine premiety cannot be detached from Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the proof of divine universal premiety. Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians 2.2 is expressed as God's son not spared, but freely handed over and given up in Romans 8.32. Let me say it again. God, Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians 2.2 is expressed as God's son not spared, but freely handed over and given up in Romans 8.32 for us. Romans 8.32 then adds for us all, which gives universal promity, the universalistic flavor, or divine promity, its universalism for us all. In order to put across the universally saving impact of the cross of Christ, which I used to call UICC, the universal impact of the cross of Christ, and then expanded into the universally reconciling, rectifying, and redeeming impact of the cross of Christ. Then again, let me say this again, because this really has got to be hammered down to get Romans all in our soul. Universal divine premiety cannot be detached from Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 is expressed as God's son not spared but freely handed over or given up or delivered up for us all in Romans 8.32. The fact that for us all is added in Romans 8.32 is in order to put across the universally saving impact 
of the cross of Christ. Now, in Romans 1, 24 and 26 and 28, the perspective of the Jewish Christian opponent of Paul, who brings another gospel, is expressed in three uses of the word paradidomi. Paradidomi, three times. And it means to hand over or to give up. And the perspective of some of the pious Jewish writers at the time, which was adopted by Paul's opponent, is that God, in his wrath, gave these people up pretty much permanently. Their only hope is to fulfill Moses' law and therefore enter into Israel for whom Christ died. And that's, well, that's not good news. There, the typical pious view held by some Jewish writers at the time, including Wisdom of Solomon and other, other books that were extant at the time. And Paul's Jewish Christian opponent also held this. It is their judgmental view and also the judgmental view of many Gentile writers about their fellow vulgar pagans. It is the judgmental view of the pagans being abandoned by the wrath of God to their willful idolatry. That view is dramatically highlighted, therefore, in Romans 18, 1, 18 to 32. Now, to use a fencing analogy, Paul parries the thrust of his opponent, beginning right in Romans 2 when he says, and probably ought to look there too. I'm kind of gathering up a lot of Romans as we end Romans. Therefore, you, all caps, O man, that is, you who hold this view of the pagans and of the wrath of God giving up and abandoning people, you, O man, are without excuse, every one of you, now he's plural, all the followers of this opponent, who judges. For while you are judging another, you are condemning yourself, since you the judge, do the same things. Paul goes on to demonstrate this by the universal homardiology, that is, demonstrating that all have sinned, very simply. It's so clearly pronounced in the Old Testament scriptures. Romans three ten to 18, Paul gives a virtual cascade of verses, one upon another, that his opponent must agree with. It ends up saying that all sinned. In God's viewpoint, who surveys all of humanity in all of its times, he sees a universally, uniformly alienated people. Slaves to sin, hostile to God, and can't do anything about it. Beyond this, in Romans 4.25, though, Paul takes this word paradidomy again. He picks it up. Parries the thrust, and he brings it into the argument and applies it to the divine act, not of wrath, but of unspeakable love. He applies it to the divine act of unspeakable love, which means wrath against sins, not against sinners. Augustine's famous line was, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Unfortunately, Augustine also said, God hates the sin and loves the sinner but will send the sinner into eternal fire if the sinner doesn't repent. 
But this works when you say that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. If you understand that God did not judge the sinner, but the sins of the sinner in the cross of Christ. When Jesus Christ became sin, he received the impact of the wages of sin. All of it. Now, we have much more to unravel on this because there's a fluffy universalism that wants to take the cross and take out the element of what Jesus experienced in terms of a kind of a punitive experience. They want to take entirely the penal substitution away, and you really can't do that, but we have to get into Anselm and all the rest of it with his doctrine of satisfaction. There's a lot of things to interweave. It does not mean that God used retributive justice on his son, but it means there was a satisfaction gained by Jesus' sacrifice and his self-giving on the cross. It goes way beyond what was needed even. And that's why God will not only, he didn't spare his son, will also freely give us all things because there was something in the cross that went way beyond what was asked for and needed. When Jesus said, if someone asks you for your coat, give him your cloak also, he fulfilled that by going way beyond the extra mile in the cross, doing way beyond what was even called for to save the human race. So that not only does he save us from sin, but he freely gives us all things and makes us heirs together with him of a brand new universe. (laughs) That's inconceivable, but so is the love of God. It's inconceivable. We've heard terms like the unstoppable love of God, the relentless love of God, the inescapable love of God, and they're all very good, but I have to say the inconceivable, impossible love of God. So beyond this Romans 4.25, Paul takes that word paradidomi into the argument and he applies it to the divine act of unspeakable love Wrath, yes, but against sins, not sinners, in which Jesus is handed over, given over, or delivered up for our offenses. Romans 4.25. That is, the offenses of all. Our equals all of us. Look at Romans 4.25. He, speaking of Jesus, referring to him in Romans 3.26 also, He, Jesus, who was handed over, paradidomi, for our offenses. That is, to take them away. And who was resurrected because of our justification. Our justification. Who is, again, who is referred to with that word, our justification? We've got to shoot the arrow right to Romans 5.18 and realize he's talking about the justification of all humankind was won by Jesus Christ in his resurrection. The cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, all are part of one event, the Christ event. He who was handed over for our offenses, that is to take them away, And it was resurrected because of our justification. That is the justification of all humankind in all time. 
because he, Jesus himself, in Romans 3.26, was justified for his faithful obedience unto death and brought to life for all in his resurrection. Our offenses, Romans 8, 425, is inclusive of Paul's offenses. He'll tell you they were many. Of all the saints, of all the pagans, of all the Jews, as well as all Paul's opponents and his followers, and all the nations, all humankind in all of its times. In fact, it is inclusive of all human beings throughout all of time. Again, consider Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. All, without exception. That's a universal homardiology if you're in theology. And that sums up Romans 3.10 to 18. Scripture after scripture. In fact, in the divine view, which I call Operation Epsilon, when God gives us his own view, all sinned, it says. All sinned. It's an appropriate translation because God sees all of humanity in all of its time in one simultaneous sweep. When Yahweh looked down from heaven, he didn't just see one generation. He saw all generations of all humankind in all of history, in all of time. As Luther said, he stands astride all history. And he saw that all sinned. And so it's an appropriate translation in Romans 3.23 because God sees all of humanity in all of its times in one simultaneous sweep. It was at that moment when God saw all of humanity in its helpless, hopeless sinfulness and hostility against him that Christ died for our sins. The love of God is demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Romans 5.8. All of the scripture has to be read in the light of that. You can't take Romans 5.6 through 10, Romans 8.31 to 32, and then interpret it in some obs- by a bunch of obscure scriptures that don't even hang together in a coherent way. You have to take these great declarations and interpret the rest of the scripture, all the scripture, in the light of God's giving of his son and the son's self-giving of himself and the uncreated self-gift of God the Holy Spirit to all of humankind. That's how you interpret the scriptures. And so, Charles... Kusar, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Some say Kauser, some say Kusar. C-O-U-S-A-R. I'm reading a book about his, the cross, the theology of the cross by him. It's, it's a smaller one, so I'm reading that along with The Redemption, along with the Trinity and History, Volume 2 by Duran, and All is Shall Be Well by Gregory MacDonald and a bunch of others, and said, so that's why I am weird. But Husar wrote, read this, or wrote this while he was commenting on Romans 5, 6, which says, while we were yet powerless, at that time Christ died for the ungodly. In that, he wrote this, Charles Husar, who I recommend reading, quote, the extraordinary feature of Christ's death was that it occurred when the unworthy were completely helpless 
when they were all together impotent to deal with their own situation. I thought he pegged it pretty well there. Incidentally, he makes a very strong statement for his agreement with the idea that we are justified by the faithfulness of Christ, that it's a subjective genitive and not by our personal faith. And he also believes that what was going on in Romans was not an argument between a human act of circumcision versus a human act of faith, but rather a divine act of salvation versus any human action at all. That's the gospel. And so when I see somebody getting that right, and I don't think even think Lonergan did get that right, So, but I like a lot of stuff he says, but I got to ferret out what he's saying and what he didn't get or what he did get, etc. But when I read a guy that knows that, then I'm already respecting him in some degree. That doesn't mean I'm going to take everything he said as perfect. Because you have to remember when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, well said, Peter, you got that as a revelation from my father. Peter turned right around again and said, God forbid you to ever go to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So that's why I say whatever preacher you listen to, especially me, check it out. In the scriptures, search the scriptures and see if it's so. And if it isn't, take what the scripture says. So, the thought in Romans 3.28, and this is never brought about, at least I've never heard it brought about, when people do the so-called Romans road witnessing. Romans 3.23a, all sinned, is completed. The thought isn't completed until 3.24. So we have to read it this way. All sinned three dots, being justified by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All sinned so that all have to be justified by grace, an act of God through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So that's Romans 3.23a and 24. That's a completed thought. Of course, fall short of the glory of God is our present condition. The doctrine of universal homardiology or universal sinfulness of mankind is symmetrical with the doctrine of universal justification. In other words, all sinned needing to be justified. But listen, it's also very asymmetrical. Asymmetrical. Because God provided infinitely more in grace in the gift of his son than we provided of sin and sinfulness. For where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, says Romans 5.20. You think about sin abounding. You think about the number of sinful actions by commission and omission committed by the human race from Adam through the rest of time. That's sin abounding. You say, wow. You can't even tabulate the number of sins and the extent of sinfulness. But where sin abounded in that degree, grace abounded much, much more. The inconceivable act of God's love in Christ. You can't help but worship. You can't help but worship when you even begin to understand it. For where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. God did not provide only an adequate. I'm going to give you some theological language that comes from the redemption by Lonergan. Not only an adequate, or the old theologians called it condign. 
a condign offering in Christ. That means adequate to what's required. And this is true doctrine. God did not provide only an adequate or condign satisfaction for our offenses. He provided his son, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world. In theological circles, this is called, and I had to look it up in the dictionary, supererogatory. That simply means way beyond what was asked for. Supererogatory satisfaction. Supererogatory means, according to American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition, means, quote, performed or observed more than is required, ordered, or expected. So, so superabundant was this sacrifice for sins and the self-giving of the Son and the divine giving of the Son. God is also free to freely give us the objects of such love, all things, all things, everything. And he will, and he has. Read Ephesians 1.3 sometime. So, Here's my theological conclusions. God loved the world so much. We learned this in John, John's gospel. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. God loved his son so much that he gave him the whole world. That was reconciled to him by his death and justified in his resurrection. He gave him all flesh, all humanity. And as John 17, 2 says, and God loved the redeemed so much or the reconciled so much that he not only redeemed, rectified and reconciled them to himself, but he freely gives them all things so that they reign in life inside the new creation. Again, again, I have to use that word again. Our offenses, Romans 4, 25 for whom Christ was delivered up means the sins of the whole world. As first John two, two indicates to that opponent, Paul could say not for our sins, only the sins of Israel, but for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation, the expiation. So the propitiation or expiation of sins that was executed in Christ's self offering as both the offering priest And the offered offering, the lamb, is not for the sins of a limited company of elect ones, like the Calvinistic doctrine in Tulip, the L in Tulip, limited atonement. It is not for a limited company of elect ones, but for the whole world of humankind in all of its times, as is taught by a combination of Romans 3.25 and 1 John 2.1 and 2. As is the case with John's gospel, And the case with Revelation, Romans presents to us the Lamb of God. He appears at the dead and the living center of Romans, the epistle, Romans 8, 32. So I'm going to close with this, like I began, and I didn't really write this into the message until about quarter of six tonight about the parable of the wicked tenants or the son and the heir. So my question is, how is God's freely giving us all things? How does that come into the picture? How does God's freely giving all things to us, 
connect with his not sparing, but handing over his own son? Well, the answer is found in the fact that his son is also the heir of all things. And so the scripture says in Genesis 21, 12, your seed, and that seed is Christ, will be traced through Isaac, not Ishmael. So Isaac was the depository of the seed that would come. So when Abraham offered him, he was thinking reasonably, he says, I, I, he's not going to die. And if he does, he'll be raised from the dead because he's the promised heir. In him and through him, the heir is coming. So if I kill him before he knows a woman and produces a child, then God's got to either stop me. God will provide himself a lamb. Or he's got to raise my son. Abraham had resurrection faith. So, God spared Isaac through whom the seed would come. But God did not spare the seed himself when he came. Christ, Galatians 3.16. The seed not spared was the son of God who, as Jesus put it in an agricultural metaphor in John 12, 24, the seed does not abide alone, but was placed in the ground having died. And this seed sprang up and bore much fruit. John 12, 24, a metaphorical way of saying that Jesus Christ, God's son, was delivered over to die to put away our sins. And he arose for our justification, the bearing forth of much fruit is the salvation of all humankind and the co-resurrection of all humanity. In the Christ event, which consisted of the elements of death, burial, and resurrection, expiation was accomplished, whereby sins were put away. And justification was given to all of humanity. Much fruit springing from the singular seed in the ground, having died, the death and burial of Jesus Christ, bringing up his resurrection. The much fruit is all of humanity justified and made alive in Christ. But listen carefully to this because this is the end rhyming with the beginning. This is an inclusio to tonight's message. But the son is also the heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 2. God in these last days has spoken to us in his son, who is the heir of all things. Son and heir. That's why I like Hebrews, because it starts right off on that foot. The heir was not spared in this case. The heir, Abraham's only son or son through whom the seed would come, he was spared because through him the seed would come. But when the seed came, the seed is Christ, he was not spared so that all humanity could become heirs with him of all things. So, of course, God freely gives us all things because we are in the air. H-E-I-R, not A-I-R. You could do a whole message on in the air or in the air. In the Christ event, then, 
he was not spared. The heir was not spared, capital H-E-I-R, so that all of humanity would become heirs of all things with him. It's kind of like the son of man sharing the reward of his dominion with the saints in Hebrews, or rather Daniel 7.27. And that's ultimately all of humankind, the son of man. The human being, the true human being is a single inclusive representative of all. If God did not spare his son, who is also the heir, then God will certainly not hold back. And in fact, has not held back from causing us to inherit all things with him. For the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. That's John 335 direct quote. Panta, all things. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The Son is the heir. And since God gave his Son over for us all, then he will not withhold all things from us. And he will freely give them to us and already has. In fact, I say he already has. You know why? Because Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed is the God of and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Amen. Thank you, Father. 